Hi, this is Rick. We edited this file on April 30th, 2013, in order to fix file upload problems we had with an earlier copy. Spectrum's next. The Science and Technology Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. My name is Rick Karneski. Brad Swift and I are the host of this show. Today we are pleased to speak with Anthony Garza Jr., who will discuss the UC Botanical Garden at Berkeley. He's a supervisor of horticulture and grounds at the Botanical Garden and oversees a large number of employees there. He runs a class on horticultural methods and is responsible for the transition to more organic methodologies at the garden, including the recent adoption of compost tea. Anthony Garza, Jr., welcome to Spectrum. Thanks for having me, Brad. Give us a, an overview of your responsibilities at the Botanical Garden. Sure. I'm the supervisor of horticulture and grounds, and so I work very closely with my boss, who is the Associate Director of Collections and Horticulture, and our director. I supervise about 10 area horticulturists, a lead building maintenance employee, and a groundskeeper. And I do a lot of interfacing with physical plant campus services here to support the infrastructure at the garden. I run a class called Horticultural Methods, which is IB112L. Uh, so I'm all over the place doing a lot of things. So it keeps it interesting every day. How old is the garden? How, what's the, the history of the garden? Sure. The garden actually started down here on campus. I have an old black and white picture in my office of palms and bananas and, and other interesting plants out in front of, I believe, North or South Hall. Well, that was pre-1930 because the garden started moving up the hill uh, to its current site, which is a former sheep and cattle farm in 1929. So it's been there that long. We actually have collections, uh, plant collections in the garden, say from the New World Desert that date from the early 30s that are still alive. What's your favorite place in the garden? Oh, that's hard to say. The garden's such a beautiful place and there are several spots where when you're up in the canyon, uh, you have views of the Golden Gate Bridge, um, which is unique to University of California Botanical Garden at Berkeley. I'd have to say my favorite place is probably out in the farthest reaches of the collection in the Mesoamerican or the Mexican and Central American collection because it it's sort of wedged down in uh, Strawberry Canyon. So you can be out in that collection among plants from uh, Mexico and feel like you're really out in habitat because you're seeing very little other built structures around you. It's a, it's a really fine collection and probably the least visited because it's the furthest out from the front entrance. Yes. 
Is there any activity that the garden does to try to preserve certain species? Yes, might absolutely. In, might be in danger. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Most of that work is has been done just because of where we are here in California with California native plants. And a lot of that conservation work is done by our curator, uh, Holly Forbes and Barbara Keller. And uh, for example, uh, and there are several, uh, there's a recent case of a, an Arctostaphylus or a, a Manzanita, California Manzanita being rediscovered uh, in the Presidio on Doyle Drive. They were um, doing some road construction and found one individual of a plant that was thought to be gone. And so uh, that plant was, before it was dug up and, and moved to another site in the Presidio, a bunch of cuttings were taken of vegetative cuttings, so we were involved in that, and we received a lot of those cuttings and have propagated those and grown those on for, you know, growing back out at the Presidio or other botanical gardens. We're growing some in the ground, so we're involved in sort of these, what you could call in the plant world, these charismatic rescues of of, uh, very rare individuals. And on campus, there's the ability for researchers to apply to the garden to do to use your space and or do something on the grounds yes we have uh, both indoor and outdoor space available to students postdocs faculty Uh, indoor greenhouse space can be utilized um, if someone wants to study plants in an indoor setting for a particular reason we also have a research plateau which is outside and this can be used for growing plants in the ground. Uh, so yes, uh, that those two areas are available to uh, anybody on campus who's doing research. Um, they usually just run it through our curator and our associate director of collections and horticulture. Uh, we make sure we can accommodate the plants and the type of work. And uh, yeah, that's been well utilized over the years. Uh, we also do other types of research or support other types of research in the garden that one might not think would happen in a botanical garden. Uh, for several years, we had um, a magnetometer up on the research plateau that was run by, I believe, the physics department. And they were uh, working to develop a very sensitive machine, almost like an MRI. So they were picking up uh, magnetic impulses from all over the Bay Area, and so they needed a quiet space away from a lot of noise. So they uh, they use that. There's uh, people from campus doing research on on bees and how far they migrate and what types of plants they they travel to and pollinate. So it can be a a, a wide ranging uh, uh, wide ranging types of research. It doesn't have to just be uh, plant or plant genetics based. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX. We are speaking with Anthony Garza Jr. about the UC Botanical Gardens. Yeah, compost tea has been around for a while. Most of the work on compost tea started with a group called the Soil Food Web. They were doing and still continue to do research on compost tea as mostly an organic replacement for synthetic fungicides for disease suppression 
in agriculture, horticulture, and landscaping. So we'd heard about it, and we had some colleagues at other gardens starting to use compost tea with good results. And so that's how we first started to hear about it. And what were the challenges in terms of embracing the process? Mm -hmm. Well, compost tea takes some specialized equipment. It's it's a new approach that, like I mentioned before, is not just pulling out the the chemical fungicides to treat a problem. It's more it's a more holistic approach where you're trying to get beneficial biology out into the environment and on your plants to suppress diseases. So it takes a while. So there's uh, there's a learning curve and, uh, and a buy-in curve with you know even my staff in terms of believing that this uh, new organic approach to disease suppression and introducing organic fertility will actually work. So, But it helps to have other botanical gardens and arboretum and other colleagues who have worked with this and have had good results from it. Talk about the brewing process. Sure. So <clears throat> we were fortunate to get a grant from the Green Initiative Fund here on campus that paid for our compost tea brewing equipment. This includes a 100-gallon tank brewer with a motor that blows air into the tank. And we also bought a large commercial-grade worm composting bin and started off with some bulk ingredients um, to make compost. And so essentially what, what the process is is taking hot compost, or what we call thermophilic compost, that is cooked down from organic biomass, and then taking worm compost, uh, the done, the castings uh, from the worms, uh, both of these things end up looking like soil when they're fully done, and we take these two things and we put them in a fine mesh bag, and we can suspend them in the tank of water, or we can put them in a five-gallon bucket of water, and we, it's like kneading dough. We need all this uh, material uh, in a water solution, and what we're doing is, <clears throat> if you have a healthy compost, uh, what you'll get in that water is a very rich mix of beneficial fungi, bacteria, nematodes, protozoa, uh, along with some nutrients. And so we take this slurry, this comp- this tea from compost, put it into the larger unit, fill that with water. We add some humic acids to sort of bind up the chloramines that are in the East Bay mud water. And then we add some extra fish emulsion and kelp emulsion. The fish and kelp emulsion are used to feed the biology that we've put in that water. We fill the, the tank up, 100 gallons, and we aerate it with the motorized blower for 24 to 48 hours. So what happens here is that <clears throat> all that beneficial biology propagates with the in the in the water and with the air and the extra organic food provided by the fish and kelp. And so during that aeration process, all this biology multiplies many, many fold. And so that's our basic brewing process. So the real benefit will be how healthy you assess your plants to be. And it I guess over time you can make that assessment. Yes, uh, at this point we have mostly been using our compost tea in our rose garden. We have a garden of old roses. And this is a, a small collection 
And so it's been easy to apply um, our relatively limited equipment uh, to this collection. Also, roses, uh, particularly cultivated roses, are classics for having fungal pathogens like uh, black spot, powdery mildew, things like that. So we've been using it in there, and some things have responded well, some things haven't responded so well. And we've also been using the compost tea in the rose garden, not just for disease suppression on foliage, but to build the health of the soil in terms of the biology of the soil, the fertility in the soil. And so it can take time to convert uh, soils um, from a conventional methodology where you're using synthetics uh, and, and then changing into using organics. That that can take time, and that is pretty well supported in their literature, going from conventional methodology to organic methodology. Um, it certainly takes some time to convert uh, soils and plants You are listening to Spectrum on KALX. We are speaking with Anthony Garza Jr. about the UC Botanical Gardens. Right now we have a student intern who has started and uh, they will be doing the brewing and helping with the brewing and application process. In horticultural methods, IB 112, I'll be exposing my students to the process. There is a student-run course on campus uh, called DECAL, and so we'll also be bringing the DECAL classes up for demonstration of how we brew and our methodology. So yeah, we're certainly, at this point, mostly getting the word out about compost tea um, to students and, and other groups right here on campus. Yeah, but but hope to broaden that outreach as again as we see positive results from our from our program. What is the volunteer program at the Botanical Gardens? The volunteer program comprises several several arms. Uh, you can volunteer uh, in horticulture with the area horticulturists. We have a very large volunteer pool of plant propagators who propagate plants for our plant sales, both our plant deck, uh, which is open daily, and our two big plant sales in spring and fall. So we have a very large volunteer plant propagator program. We also have volunteers who work in our with our curators, doing all types of uh, things that curators do in museums. Um... And then we also have a very large and active docent volunteer program, uh, as most museums do. So the docents um, lead tours, uh, adult tours, children's tours, and uh, f- free tours to the public as well. Now, the, the volunteer program embraces the university faculty, staff, students, and it's also open to the community as well. Is that right? The volunteer program? Right. Oh, yes. Uh the volunteer program is open to anybody who's got the time uh, to commit. I believe we do ask for a certain uh, time commitment uh, before we'll we'll uh, you know give you your badge and your parking pass because uh, you know a lot of people come and go. But uh, we've we really couldn't do what we do without our volunteers. Uh, they do an amazing amount of work from the docenting to the volunteer plant propagation, working in horticulture and curation. 
because the garden is is understaffed and underfunded, unfortunately, we rely heavily on on the work and the services of our volunteers. And within that volunteer program, the kinds of opportunities there are to learn about, if, if someone doesn't have a great deal of experience, how much training is involved in that program where people who are interested but don't have expertise could be of great mm-hmm. assistance to you, yeah. potentially learn how to do it all. Mm-hmm. There's a very specific uh, training program for the docents. In fact, that is... Uh, that is fee-based. The docents actually have to pay to come and be trained for the docent program, and that runs for several months. Uh, volunteer propagation training program is a little more casual, but there we have section heads in the volunteer propagation program who grow certain groups of plants, and they'll uh, train new people who come in along with our volunteer plant propagation program coordinator. Uh, they'll also do some sort of hands-on training. Um, horticultural volunteers are a little different. We do prefer horticultural volunteers that come in with a, some bit of knowledge, um, at least general knowledge about horticulture and landscaping and um, tools and things like that. Uh, but horticultural volunteers, you know, it's mostly about time and having the interest. And uh, they'll come in and work with the horticulturists and, uh, and certainly uh, learn quickly. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX. We are speaking with Anthony Garza Jr. about the UC Botanical Gardens. Are there other ways that the garden is uh, reaching out to the community or involving the community in activities? Uh, yes, we have programs that we run through the year, and they may not specifically be on, uh, you know, growing a particular plant. Uh, we try and, and broaden the interest range with our programs. It could be things like succulent wreath making. We have a concert series during the summer. We have children's programs that may or may not have to do with plants. We have, uh, classes on botanical illustration. So we really try and broaden uh, the interest um, uh, and appeal to other groups besides people who are just specifically interested in growing plants. Uh, one of the audiences we're reaching out to right now are, are people uh, who are interested in, in the arts or artists themselves. Uh, we have a very unique uh, installation in the garden right now by Shirley uh, Alexandra Watts. This is a installation that has to do with uh, bringing awareness to the plight of, of honeybees and California native bees. It's a very interesting physical installation that you can come and see in our Mediterranean Basin collection just above the Rose Garden. Uh, so that uh, is a trend we're seeing in botanical gardens in particular is, is broadening the appeal to other audiences, including art installations. And so we're trying to be thoughtful and tasteful about it. And in this case with the, with the bee installation called a garden of mouthings, which is a reference to a Sylvia Plath poem, we're trying to cross link that art with, uh, the mission of the garden. And so this is a nice fit because it is about 
uh, being aware about native bees and their role in the ecosystem and their relationship with plants. So that was a nice fit. And so a unique opportunity to come and see a unique piece of art uh, in the botanical garden. So we're doing things like that to, to draw in other people besides just what we call plant people. And how long will that installation be up? Well, it's been in for a couple of months now, and I think the duration was roughly about six months. Um, it will eventually probably succumb to the elements, and so we'll have to take it down at some point. But it is something you can actually walk up, walk under, sit in. Uh, there's a poem in there. There's pictures of the bees with uh, their names and their roles uh, in the environment. So it's a very interesting and educational uh art installation, which also happens to be, I think, beautiful and appealing and in a unique setting in the garden. Great. And uh, other artists out there that might be listening who would want to run an idea by you, what's the way to get in touch? Uh, They would probably get in touch with Vanessa Cruz, uh, who is on staff, and she's been working with Shirley and, uh, in fact, Shirley Watts is um, working on bringing in more artists in the next year to do multiple installations in the garden. So uh, we're looking forward to that. And do you have a funding source for that? Is it? I believe that one is uh, the fundraising is being done by uh, the groups of artists who are actually coming in uh, to do it. Uh, so, we, yeah, we, at this point... Um, wish we we did but we don't have a lot of money to support the arts but we like to promote <laughs> the idea of the arts um, so we hope it's a good cross collaboration in um, having interesting art in the garden for people to see and also giving the artists um, some good exposure to their audience as well any point that you would like to make about the garden that i haven't uh, covered yeah i think one of the things that always surprises us at the garden is um how many people, even people who have lived in Berkeley for years and years, uh, have never been up to the Botanical Garden. It really is a hidden gem here in the greater Bay Area. There's nowhere else where you can come and visit for relatively uh, uh, cheaply where you can experience plants from around the world grown in naturalistic assemblages um and have a view of the Golden Gate Bridge, places to have a picnic. It's really a unique setting in the Bay Area and um and still underutilized even by uh the campus. So that that would be my one uh shout out, if you will, for the garden is to please come and visit uh and support uh, the botanical garden and its mission. Great. Anthony Garza, thanks for coming on Spectrum. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Anthony Garza, Jr. You can find out more about the UC Botanical Garden at botanicalgarden.berkeley.edu. A regular feature of Spectrum is present a calendar of the science and technology-related events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. On the third Friday of every month, the Chabot Space and Science Center, located in the beautiful Oakland Hills at 10,000 Skyline Boulevard, hosts night school from 7 to 11 p.m. Guests 18 years or older are welcome to enjoy full access to exhibits, special activities, workshops, open labs, discussion forums, a live planetarium show, film screenings, and telescope viewings if weather permits.
Food, beer, and wine are available for purchase. Tonight's theme is Home Ec and will feature DIY projects including a green gift bazaar, holiday kitchen science, a fix-it workshop, discussions with the local monthly meetup group, the Craftellectuals, and mold wine. Visit www.chabotscience.org for more details. Tomorrow, Saturday, December 17th, the director of the UC-wide Institute for Nuclear and Particle Astrophysics and Cosmology, Bernard Sadulet, is giving a talk for the free monthly Science Cal lecture series. This talk will be 11 to noon in room 100 of the Genetics and Plant Biology building here at UC Berkeley. Shedding light on the dark side of the universe, he will share current attempts to detect the weekly interactive massive particles, which could make up the dark matter that makes up five times as much of the energy in the universe as ordinary matter. Visit science.cal.berkeley.edu for more information. Nerd Night is the Discovery Channel with beer. On the third Wednesday of the month, in this case December 21st, nerds of all walks of life gather at the rickshaw stop, 155 Fell Street at Van Ness in San Francisco. Plunk down their hard-earned $8, drink, mingle, and hear three talks. This month, senior UC Davis medical student Erica Lee will present Genes, Gonads, and Genitals, the Miracle of Human Sex Differentiation. And Aquilo Capital co-founder Adam Bristol will discuss the future of personalized medicine and predictive bioinformatics. There will also be a third surprise speaker. sf.nerdnight.com for more information. And now with some news headlines, here's Brad Swift. The surprising discovery of a new way to tune and enhance thermal conductivity gives engineers a new tool for managing thermal effects in smartphones and computers, lasers, and a number of other powered devices. Science Daily reports the finding was made by a group of engineers headed by Dayu Lee, Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Vanderbilt University, and published online in the journal Nature Nanotechnology on December 11th. Lee and his collaborators discovered that the thermal conductivity of a pair of thin strips of material called boron nanoribbons can be enhanced by up to 45%, depending on the process that they used to stick the two ribbons together. Although the research was conducted with boron nanoribbons, the results are generally applicable to other thin-film materials. According to Lee, the force that holds the two nanoribbons together is a weak electrostatic attraction called the van der Waals force. Professor Lee stated, Traditionally, it is widely believed that the phonons that carry heat are scattered at van der Waals interfaces, which makes the ribbon bundles thermal conductivity the same as that of each ribbon. What we discovered is in sharp contrast to this classical view. We show that the phonons can cross these interfaces without being scattered, which significantly enhances the thermal conductivity. In addition, the researchers found that they could control the thermal conductivity between high and low value by treating the interface of the nanoribbon pairs with different solutions. One of the first areas where this new knowledge is likely to be applied is in the thermal management of microelectronic devices like computer chips and nanocomposites that are being developed for use in flexible electronic devices and structural materials for aerospace vehicles. 
Joe Cordaro and the Economist pointed me to an article that appeared in the October 17th issue of the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. In it, French researchers Carolyn Millette and her team studied the quality of meal duck foie gras. France produces 73% of these fat duck and goose livers. One undesirable issue is that some livers seem to have larger amounts of fat loss during cooking than others. Market regulation limits fat loss to 30%, and lower fat loss leads to more highly prized delicacies. A proteomic study got to the biological cause of this fat loss. Intense anabolic pathways lead to livers with low fat loss. Bidimensional electrophoresis and mass spectrometry showed that the livers were rich in proteins that help with the digestion and storage of food. The less desirable livers that lost a lot of fat were in a different physiological stage and had unique proteins, including fatty acid binding protein 4. This is a marker for a non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in humans. This suggests that the liver quality is dictated before the slaughter of the animal. One practical aspect is that the yield of foie gras is improved by reducing the duration of overfeeding. Understanding the biological mechanism can increase yield and thus improve the humane production of fatty livers. It should be noted that the State of California Health and Safety Code, enacted in 2004, prohibits the force feeding of birds for the purpose of enlarging their livers or the sale of such products, starting on July 1, 2012. Music heard in today's program was the track Petit Talib off of Lostana David's 2011 album entitled Folk and Acoustic. It is released under the Creative Commons Attribution License, version 3.0. for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.